hello everyone and welcome to season two of the malware tech podcast we're um, back and i would like to say better than before but i'm not convinced so uh <laughs> let's get into it dang way to start it off positively <laughs> i'm well, a positive person <laughs> well speaking of positive what's everyone drinking what's everyone uh poison of, t- uh, t- of choice today I thought- I no, you had the perfect, yeah, yeah. positive. Who has COVID? That's what I was going <laughs> That would have been the best segue. Right? <laughs> no, we're quarantinis were a year ago. I need to hear about the purple thing Gabs is holding. <laughs> yeah, so I've got, um, it's made with Empress Gin, which is purple because of the pea flower that they use in it. And then I made lavender syrup yesterday and I made a gin and tonic with lavender syrup. And it's surprisingly good because I wasn't sure how lavender was going to taste. <laughs> Lavender tastes really good. I, I like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm actually, I'm trying a couple of non-alcoholic spirits in the UK and they make this, that is like, it's got like guns and bears, like in a hat on it. So it's extremely sure American. Apparently <laughs> I'm extremely sure it's made <laughs> in the is, UK. That does not yeah. look British to me. I wish, it's, I wish it, it was called the right to bear arms. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> It's really terrible. I like it. It's it's good. It's Jack Daniels, basically, um, with the kick. No booze in it, which is nice because, like, I'm trying to keep a clear head all the way through this whole podcast situation. I thought I, the uh, entire purpose of Jack Daniels was getting drunk. You don't drink it for the taste. Good. I like the People taste of Jack like Daniels. actually like the taste of it? Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Jack Daniels is a very respectable sip and whiskey, sir. See, I haven't corrupted you properly yet. <laughs> all right. I, I, I can't agree. I'm sorry. <laughs> Check what's on your, what's in that bottle over there. I, I can't read Japanese, so I actually don't know. <laughs> it's some kind of sake. Um, it's 16% alcohol, though, so that's that's kind of cool. Oh, wait, Dang. my camera doesn't autofocus. Um, yeah, but it's uh, we got it from this n- uh, new sushi place we tried, which is uh, probably one of the better sushi places I've tried recently. Uh, they had a very, very nice bowl of sashimi that looked like it was presented as art um cost a lot though yeah that was a very painful dinner that night. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i'm gonna have an, es- a, an espresso tonic so basically mm-hmm. just uh, a double shot of espresso some lemon and lime juice and a bottle of tonic <laughs> so speaking of that sushi tech remember those little crunchy crabs that you wouldn't touch <laughs> yeah i i like i like crab um like I like the taste of crab meat. Um, I do not like crabs. I'm absolutely terrified <laughs> of any kind of crustacean because they are basically giant armored spiders. You and would I have do not loved, use spiders. You would have loved with the work I did in college because my uh, neurobiology like capstone was done with um, invertebrate crustacean research. Yeah, I, I don't. Even, <laughs> I don't go near lobsters. I don't go near crabs. None of that stuff. And are they alive? Like, no, it was just okay. a, um, I, I don't know if it was even cooked. It was, it was just cooked. an entire fried. crab. If you eat a you crab just... that's not cooked, you can get a, a whole host of fun parasites. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely want to cook that properly. I mean, it's a sushi restaurant. Isn't half the point eating just raw bullshit that will probably um, kill you? Yeah, but the raw not bullshit is supposed, to be, is supposed to be kept at a certain temperature so it won't kill you. <laughs> the crabs were deep fried. They were like this, they were this big and they were, the entire thing was deep fried. So the idea is you just eat the whole thing. Definitely crabs crunchy. are the garbage disposals of the ocean. Like they, they just eat the crap off the bottom and they process it, turn it into delicious, delicious and tasty crab meat. And then the stuff you get rid of before you eat that. Yeah, that's that's my so. point is like, why why do you eat the shell? Like that is, that is not a good experience. For texture. Food is not just about... It's like so skeleton is an texture. odd texture. Yeah. Exoskeleton is an odd texture. It's like boiling your eggs and then not taking the shell off. Like, mm, I love this texture. <laughs> no, no, no one does. Exoskeletophage. Is that what we're calling it? I like it. That's my new, that's my new novella about teaching you strange eating experiences in the Los Angeles area. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. crabs are assholes. Um, <laughs> they are they're terrible. They're so mean. I can't even tell you how many times I got like pinched by them. I would give them horrible names so I didn't feel bad. <laughs> As opposed, uh, I used to work at Red Lobster when I was I was uh, younger. I was a hostess. What did my brother? The crabs are the lobsters out of the tank. 
Yeah, oh, totally. I, I would grab the, the lobsters out of the tank and they were all actually very nice. Like they were extremely polite to me before I sent them to the polite. back to be <laughs> so, uh, They were very, very nice. Crabs are horrible. Lobsters were quite polite, actually, I discovered. They were, they were nice, respectable little beasts. Well, that's why if you're going for a crab, you give it something to pinch, like a chopstick. You poke it at it, it grabs the chopstick, then you go in there with pliers, you clip their claws off, done. I don't know, Tran. Um, I've spent most of my adult life trying not to get crabs. <laughs> Tran's favorite hobby. Yes. Um, catch you, them all. <laughs> so like when I was doing research with them, though, it was so weird because I had to put like, we were tracking their eye movements because um, they have like some kind of neuro like ability to self-locate or whatever. And um, they we had to put like these little flags on their eyes and they were fiddler crabs. So the crab, the entire crowd was about that big. It was probably what you're eating. And like trying to put a little flag on their eye stock when they're that big was super fun. It was my favorite hobby. Conversation's <laughs> deeply disturbing. <laughs> it was weird. Okay. <laughs> so I know it's been a while since we've actually recorded a podcast together. I mean, what's everyone who's not been up to the last few months? I think it's been several months since we've been together. I don't know. I see uh, malware's background hasn't changed. So yeah. Uh... <laughs> I, I spent most of the months. I got COVID and then I got in my first fist fight since college. That's about all that's happened wow. to me. Wow. Did you win? Okay. I would say I won. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We're very proud. Um, I'm going to grad school. So that's cool. Congratulations. Thanks. Congratulations. That's wonderful. What are you doing? I'm going to NYU studying cybersecurity with concentration in global global conflict and cybercrime that's amazing yeah congratulations i think you have some exciting news too sorry what how often do you have to go down to new york for it um it really depends so it's like a pretty flexible program um so they were like hey like if there are classes that you don't want to come in for like just let us know and we'll figure something out because they're like trying to do flex learning now anyway because of covid they kind of had to like figure it out real quick um but I don't know, maybe once a week tops, I think going into the city, which really isn't too bad. So I like the city, so I'm not mad. Tara, you've been moving around the world as well. So what have you been up to? God, so <laughs> when I first met Marcus, he was stuck in my country and now I'm kind of stuck in his, <laughs> um, in a good way for me. <laughs> uh, I'm actually in the United Kingdom right now and I'm finishing up. I've got one week left on a uh, research grant in cybersecurity. I'm a Fulbright scholar for the United States in cybersecurity. There's um, two of them from each country and we kind of go back and forth for the year. Um, apparently Obama and Cameron dreamed this up between them in like 2016 to have sort of like senior cybersecurity people trade places for the year as a special Fulbright thing, it's pretty fun. Um, and so next week I am finishing this off. Uh, I'm, I'm here, I've been here for three months Three and a half I'm months so now sorry. doing research on the, the, you're so sorry. You're so sorry now, Marcus. <laughs> um, I've been here for three and a half months doing research for the incident responders for WannaCry, um, learning about how uh, civilian installations were impacted by it and lost records, things like that. Um, the impacts on incident responders for the day and the week of WannaCry. And my research partner is, um, Lord Alderdice, the current deputy speaker of the UK House of Lords, and he's in the election to be the next Lord Speaker of the UK House of Lords. And we're doing a talk next week, as a as I do apparently now, and presenting my final research. As a single, and I get to come home. Uh, no, and yeah, it was, he's he's a lovely human being. I've learned an incredible amount. Um, the most con- the hardest thing for me was UK titles. Like I I don't. Um, you know, when you when you do nothing but like watch BBC bonnet dramas and stuff like that, you get a very mixed up idea of how the the um, aristocracy or nobility works in the UK. So you mix up like whether like different classes and how they address each other because it's just all Judy Dench in my head, right? So, uh, but it's it's been a really incredible experience. Yeah, awesome. And yeah, Oxford, yeah, I've been in kind of the same place in the same room for three and a half months because the UK's been on lockdown since four hours after I got here. How's it been, uh, especially today, since the news of Prince, Prince Philip? Um, I I think uh, there was a somber note. Um, I'm in I'm in a 
kind of a large house here with, with some folks and it was a somber note. Um, there's, there was no sort of like out, outspoken noises or anything like that. Flags were lowered to half mast um, that I saw around Oxford. Um, yeah, I think um, he, he, was, he was respected here and, and it was it's very sad. I think most people are just feeling um, sorrow because anytime you've, you've had a partner who's been with you for seven decades or more, I think most people just feel sorry for the queen and she lost her husband, honestly. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. But you know, he he died at ninety nine after a, a good long a good long yes. spate of years. May we all die in with uh, with a near a hundred years to our names and with excellent health care. <laughs> exactly. Tran, what have you been up to? I'm really hoping I didn't just break some kind of law or something. <laughs> <laughs> that just yeah, okay, yeah, Tran. <laughs> I I don't know what I I think the last I don't remember what the last podcast when it was, but in December, I moved back to the States. So hence my background, I'm not in Germany anymore or Marcus's other apartment in the UK. Um, so yeah, just moved back to the States in December, just been busy with work and little projects here and there. And now that the lockdowns are opening up, at least here in California, just trying to look for opportunities to go out more again. Yeah, I've been back in the gym. It's been freaking awesome because I can go there and not worry about COVID. I mean, gyms are cesspools as it is. So like being there during COVID is the worst thing ever. So I'm happy to be. Mostly what I've vaccinated. been doing is, oh, I'm, so, I'm so jealous. I, I've been doing zombies run here in the UK and back in the US as well too. So if you guys are into like um, augmented reality running games and stuff like that outside, I'm super into the storylines and stuff. So there's not a cesspool situation outside and I can breathe freely and like huff and puff at my own pace, I guess. What do you do in the gym? I lift. Um, at one point I was powerlifting, lifting like five or six days a week. Obviously that has not been the case for the last year. Um, so I'm just slowly kind of getting back into it. Um, trying to work up and see kind of how much strength I've lost and what I can work back up to. So yeah, I just like lifting. Yeah. Since getting back, I started exercising. I have a, I have a home gym setup. I, I, I personally don't like going to gyms. I, I feel, I feel watched when I'm in the gym or at least it's possible to watch, but I don't like that. I feel like working out is a very private affair. So. Try being a girl <laughs> in the weight section. Every time I walk into the weight section, like it's all guys and they're just like, what does she do? Like, they're like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Like, it's that look. And I'm like, mm, no, mm -hmm. but it's weird. It took me a long time to like get over it. It was, it really bothered me at first. So I'm sorry. It's all good. You belong there. You belong there. People on there Thanks. kicking ass. Yes. Heck, have With you been surfing drink? at all lately or cycling? You look a little pale, like you're losing your tan. I got yeah. COVID. Of course, I've not been <laughs> fucking surfing. I could barely breathe for a month. <laughs> well, at least in the, you now have an antibody, so you're you're good to go. I mean, I had antibodies, and then I fucking got it again. Yeah, they're not sure how long the antibodies are going to last, so that's why people are getting, even if they've had COVID, it's recommended that they get the vaccine. I got two fucking separate uh, uh, variants of it. Like I got the original variant back in like February of whatever year it was that it started. It, <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> and then um, there was a new variant which could somewhat evade antibodies, which I got in December. And um, that one was a lot worse than the first. Um, but now there's no point being vaccinated just yet because I still have antibodies for both of the variants. So uh, I'll probably give it a while and then get the vaccine when the antibodies start to wear off or if there's any proof that a new variant can bypass the current ones. Well, and the sooner you get it, the bigger of a reaction you'll likely have too because you still have antibodies. That's the reason like people are having reactions to some of the shots is because you already have antibodies if you've been exposed to COVID or if you've had it. Um, you're getting more of that immune response versus Super like COVID. Had it. yeah <laughs> so like it'll feel worse for you when you get the vaccine probably yeah I'm not looking forward to it like I already have the protection so I might just like give it a miss for now um and just keep monitoring my antibody levels but uh because like I I don't even know what my antibodies are to like they could be not to the spike protein in which case then I have to go through an entire different immune reaction to a new part of the virus, which they didn't identify. And then that's going to fucking suck. So 
Um, You're healthy and in your 20s. Are you even eligible in California yet? I thought they're giving it to anyone now. Do you, there, there are ways. Uh, I know people, I mean, they, the logistics here in California are not great because people are not showing up for the appointments or canceling appointments last minute. So they literally have doses that they're, they have to throw away because they just don't want to give it to. So what pe- some people figured out mm-hmm. is if you just hang out at the pharmacy towards the end of the day, if they have leftover doses, first come, first serve. Yeah, they can't be, once they're open, they have to be used within six hours. Um, So like there have been times, there was that story, it made me really mad in New York Times about a doctor who like people didn't show up for their appointments. He had like two Mm -hmm. extra doses and um, he called his wife who was super sick and was basically eligible anyway and was like, here, come down here. I'm going to give you the vaccine because we don't have that much time left before this one goes bad. And they tried to press criminal Mm -hmm. charges against him for stealing. And I was like, that pisses me off. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the 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 each really state nice. is doing it so differently too. Because um, I I have colleagues in states in the Midwest, and I think the Army National Guard are the ones doing all the logistics, all of the administration. Um, the colleague she got in line, and when she when she arrived at the line, it was a massive line. She thought, "Oh crap, I'm going to be here for several hours." She waited maybe ten minutes. And it was like an assembly line. Someone administers it, then they make you sit over there and someone watches you for 15 minutes. Like you're good to go in and out in under half an hour. Yeah, that's what they're doing in New York too. They've got the guard running it. Um, Here in Connecticut, I was part of the group, the MedCorps that ran a lot of the vaccine clinics, especially for the older people when they first were coming out. And it was similar, but it was like really tightly run in terms of appointments, like 15 minute slots and like not getting behind. So it was kind of stressful, but um, yeah, the observation and everything were the same, which was super fun. They're doing the same in Seattle is what Deviant says that uh, large civic areas are being dedicated in the same way. Um, and the assembly lines are clear. There's a spot that you stand on and then when you move forward, you move forward six feet to the next spot and they, they chunk you through there like they're like your little Lego minifigs all the way through. It's, nope. it's great. I love to see it. For the flu shot, my work did a, like a literal drive through a flu shot. Like you drove into this parking garage and there was a person there and you filled out your like paperwork in your car and then you handed it back to them. And then you drove up to this next spot and they like, how'd you put your arm out the window and gave you a flu shot? And I was like, that would have been cool for COVID. Like, <laughs> I feel like mm-hmm. instead of drive through, it should be drive by where you're not in the car <laughs> and they just come back in the car and shoot vaccines out the window. The little tranquilizer darts. Yeah, that's just how they should deal with the anti-vaxxers. Just like this, boop. <laughs> this world in your head is violent. It's it's not violent if it helps people. That's, well, you're that's upgrading. My role. You, well, you, you want to upgrade them to five G so they get the benefit yeah, of, uh, like, of the connectivity. Like, where else are we going to put five G masks if not in the vaccines? Like, I mean, we don't have that much real estate. I for one have been enjoying my five G. Same, my, my cell service is full bars ever since I got COVID. I could use some of that 5G in the Wi-Fi situation that I'm in right here. I can imagine the uh, UK internet is like, it's worse than most third world countries. And you're in a university, which is even worse. It's like- Okay, but even better, Australia internet. Australia is the Australia? only place that is worse than the UK. <laughs> Australia internet's they still terrible. Use, they still use copper internet in 2020 in most <gasps> major areas. Iceland was surprisingly good. Tech, do you remember that Pretty night? Much anywhere play- is, yeah. Well, that night we played PUBG. I was in Iceland. I was actually tethering off of my cell phone. Oh, no, I know. It's um, what? UK actually did it backwards and they had the really big issue with rural areas, basically had no internet at all, or they had like 300 kilobit internet. So they funded a bunch of money into what they called like the Rural Internet Development Program which basically resulted in all of the rural areas ending up with like Gbit. And then you have like central London, there'll be just areas where it's absolutely dog shit internet, like major cities. You're getting like a couple of like megabits, maybe even less. And then there are rural like farmhouses with Gbit lines. <laughs> That's kind of funny. It's, it's very British. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that benefited you, didn't it? Growing up, you had super fast internet in your remote town. I had a faster internet than central London in the middle. I mean, trans being to my place, it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. And I had like something like 200 megabytes. I I think in the middle of nowhere is a little bit of an exaggeration. It's a really beautiful coastal town. Okay. It's a lovely little town. How does coast and beautiful not make it the middle of nowhere? 
It's like miles from any major city. But you kind of have most of what you need. Mm-hmm. You have I mean, fast isn't that internet. Anywhere? You have food. <laughs> there's <laughs> waves. There's food. Yeah. There's internet. What more do you want? There's gym. <laughs> where where local... do you... There's How gym. bad is it in America <laughs> that rural is like, oh, we don't have food? <laughs> Well, for, for, for fun, I was looking at um, houses in Northern California in more remote areas. Uh, I specifically looked in a town called Sea Ranch, California. The, the closest supermarket is about an hour away to buy food. Fuck that. <laughs> the fact that that exists is just terrifying. It's a really cool town. You should read about it. It has, it has, has really interesting architecture where all the, the, the rules require that the architectural design blends in with the with the surrounding nature and there's different types of um nature in the other architecture or like this house is, has to look like trees yeah it has to kind of look like trees so there's a section of the town that are in the middle of redwood forest so you have to have wood siding on the house <laughs> then you have houses that are along the beach you have also houses that are along the coastal cliffs etc they made of sand <laughs> no they're they have to made, made, be made of stone uh, and they want you to have natural materials for some of the siding or the roofing materials. So it helps to blend in with the, the surroundings a little bit. It's, it's really cool. You should ch- check out pictures. <laughs> I have another question. If it's called Sea Ranch, does everyone have seahorses? That would be amazing. You can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> right to us on a seahorse. Over here asking the important shit. But speaking hey. of vaccines, um, I know there's a lot of talk about this vaccine passport concept i mm. i think it's kind of funny because it kind of already exists yes oh, yeah 100 percent already <laughs> exists yeah. it's yeah. been it's a thing exists. since like the beginning of time but it's you know just... they're gonna recreate it because they can because we're yeah they're gonna reinvent the wheel <laughs> they're gonna reinvent the wheel for something that has worked for decades in everywhere else in the world now i was talking this week on twitter about that situation and just how complicated it's going to be because one is going to be really easy to falsify if they use a paper version two if they try to do anything electronic i mean we just don't currently have anything that's going also anything universal i think that's the the the, the tricky thing something universal that'll be utilized and accepted i mean passports took a while for everyone to standardize on the biometrics and the data what the stored and on on the whatever that text string is on the passport Um, but before passports used to be pieces of paper too and it could be forged um, and I think it was just an agreement that, hey, we, we need to standardize this. I don't think there's going to be a standardization of a vaccine passport. Uh, if in they, that they put it in the 5G microchip, so it like, just says, hey, <laughs> hey he's, he's protected. Yeah, they should have just made him scannable. Yeah, like, Problem it, like solved. It, it can be like the airport metal detectors, but instead it scans for like people who emit 5G and then it's like, okay, you're fine. <laughs> you can go on the plane. I think we've discovered already so so it's completely sufficiently that those detectors don't even catch your ankle bracelet. No, they didn't. Yeah. I actually, for the first time, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I flew out. um, I got to go through the metal detector instead of the the x-ray scanner for the first time in my life. I was like, oh my God, trans white. I have got really white. Like they're letting me go through the (laughs) fucking metal detector now. Like I, I definitely need to be out in the sun a bit more. Oh man. But like, I was so confused. They, they like, cause they have like a gate that separates the two and then they open the gate and they like hush me through. And I'm like, <laughs> but yeah, you. And I'm like, what? Why have I been granted this privilege? Yeah, For, I, but- Tara and Gabs, I'm assuming both of you have TSA pre, so you, you get to go through the metal detector as well. Most of the time. Mm-hmm. I fly through on clouds of angel wings at this point. Pretty so. much, yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah. I could walk through and like not stop, and they wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Give a nice wink, like yeah, and trail on through, and they'd be, and they'd be like, bye. Although there was one time when like I had I was wearing like a quarter zip, so like the zipper was right here, and it set off the metal detector, and they were like, we have to search you. I'm really sorry, and like this chick like literally came up and she was just like hands on I was like she's like do you want to go in a room and do this and I was like no just get it over with it was really funny it was so funny I was laughing she was so uncomfortable I felt bad I start taking my clothes off when they do that um when Mm -hmm. they say can we can we search you I I layered always going through airports I just look them dead in the eye and I just start taking my clothes off I have no shame down to like I can't I'll get naked yeah and they're like ma'am ma'am it's fine I'm like no I'll keep going (laughs) (laughs) tear clothes off and get down to like you know like a like 
literally like Brock Kimisol kind of situation. And oh. and I'm like, are we good? Are we good yet? Are we good yet? And you know, usually that works at that point. They're like, get out here. They just make them uncomfortable, and then they'll just wave you by. Social yeah. engineering. Like that's, that's stare them dead in the eye. Trick. Yeah, you gotta assert dominance. Assert dominance. Look me in the eye. Their teeth. Yeah, but I mean, back to the vaccine passport thing. I mean, a lot of people have suggested like Google Pay or Apple Pay or whatever it is. But the problem with that is, I mean, the credit cards verify with back with the companies that they're issued from, mm-hmm. and the vaccine passport. I mean, there's no central database. Probably, to yeah, verify there's no, against. nothing to verify it against. So people could just create something and put it on Google Pay or whatever. So I don't know. That's the problem. I was talking about this week and someone called me a Nazi for discussing it. So that was. It sounds like American beautiful. politics. <laughs> that sounds like someone who's intellectually lazy and doesn't want to actually engage in discussion. Uh, I think I, I feel like that's like the default thing. If you, if you don't know what to say, you just call someone a Nazi. I think it was the keep, first time I've ever been called a Nazi, though. Like, it was kind of momentous in my life. So. I keep getting these tweets that are like, uh, you seem smart, but I can't believe you aren't tolerant of these political ideologies and the political ideologies of, like, women should not have rights. And it's just like, my dude, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also curious about this, you know, the, the yellow card um, that has been used for decades. What is the frequency of people faking those? That's what I'm curious about. This has never been a political issue before. Yeah, I don't think there's ever really been an impetus for that. Uh, Now, there is one thing. Nope, the the, um, anti-vaxxers existed before COVID, and Mm -hmm. they were people who were uh, exempting their kids from vaccinations for school. And there there were people that faked their kids' vaccination cards instead of go through the process of getting exemptions. You know what? Connecticut is actually currently voting on getting rid of that exemption, which I think is fascinating because a lot of states... Like, I don't know. I think most states have it still. But yeah, Connecticut's it's going to a vote. They want to get rid of the religious exemption for vaccines. And I think that's kind of a bold move. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I thought what they the can't law? do that because of the uh, the whole Religious Freedoms Act. People are free can. to go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm not religious, so I don't understand. What is the logic or the rationale behind a religious reason to not get vaccinated? A lot of my yeah. friends live in the uh, Jewish I, I, community. Yeah, but- and the Jewish community, especially like the Hasidic, like traditional Jews, I know they won't get it. Um, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but yeah. I grew up in a really con- in a conservative home, but not one that was anti-vax. But at the same time, the kinds of people I was around were very much the the conservative Jewish, conservative uh, um, evangelical types. The, there are groups uh, in the in this country who believe that um, that you you shouldn't take vaccinations because if the Lord meant you to survive diseases, then he'll keep protect you through the diseases. And if he doesn't mean it, then it's not God's will for you to survive. And that is a strong religious belief in, in it's not uncommon. It's, it's minority at this point, but it's not uncommon at all. Um, the, the legal test for give it, for giving people that exemption for vaccinations for public school provisioning would have to do something more with tests like um, Christian scientists and things like that, where, where they radically deny medical care to children um, based on the beliefs of the parents that's been tested in courts now and it's you you can't you can't deny basic medical care to children based on the beliefs of the parents vaccinations basically that's the next legal test of it is finding out whether or not vaccinating your child against measles mumps rubella uh, or not doing so is is denying them basic care that would be something that would be illegal and if that is the case then that exemption is going to go away yeah another another thing that a lot of religious groups they don't believe in birth control and they think birth control is kind of akin to abortion and yes they don't want people to take it so i know that was a big thing because i grew up catholic um Mm -hmm. but also yeah i saw a story like that i love the legal advice subreddit i don't know if you guys ever read through that on reddit but it's fantastic because people get themselves in these situations and i'm just like i don't know how you did this but there was one this girl got bitten by something that was like clearly rabid and her parents were super religious. So they were just like, well, we'll see what happens. And like, finally her uncle came over and was like, I'm taking this kid to the hospital. Like what the hell is wrong with you guys? And he was asking like, if he could get in trouble for taking the child to the hospital. Cause it, the parents could technically call it in as kidnapping. Yeah. And that was alarming. Dude, America is fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I believe the largest uh, group of anti-vaxxers are actually in France. Uh, because I, I think that's where the anti-vaxxer movement started because that's where vaccination was kind of westernized and, and, and created in Europe, I believe it was in, in France. And the anti-vaxxer movement started there from, uh, from, from, from what I recall. 
Yeah, but like it used to be kind of a, a small thing, at least even in like the UK, it was there was a very small fraction of population. But in America, it's become like part of the political argument, which is terrifying. Like you have organizations like QAnon, which typically are just fringe conspiracy groups that you wouldn't pay any attention to. But political parties have started embracing them and pushing their ideologies onto their base. And now you've got this massive problem with these very, very fringe ideologies actually becoming mainstream. So I would, I'd probably say America has, is, has or is surpassing most of the places with like genuine anti-vaxxers with this new conspiracy-driven anti-vax. I think some of the other, and I've actually heard this from people who are very intelligent and the, that I work with, that they're not comfortable with the vaccine because they feel that it wasn't properly tested and it was rushed. And... Gabs, I, I welcome your point of view since you're the you're the <laughs> biologist here. But I mean, I worked on with... one of them. mRNA vaccines were completely different from other vaccines, so the testing is a different testing cycle. The old vaccines are basically neutered or denatured versions of the virus, which is a lot of biological or viral material that you're introducing to the body. So there's you need to test it long because you have no idea what's going on. Versus mRNA, which you're only inserting a very small snippet of code that you more or less know what's going to happen in your body. So your testing cycle is much shorter. So it's not that they're testing, they're taking shortcuts. It's the testing methodology is completely different because this is a completely different method of uh, your body creating antibodies. Well, and the, the red tape was the part that was expedited. It wasn't the trials. It was the FDA actually looking at it instead of waiting like three months to look at the data. I mean, a lot of what holds trials up and causes them to be so long is the FDA taking a long time to look at the results of the study. And there is a longer term follow-up. So that's why like right now, I know there was a lot of contention last week because they were saying, oh, this will be, we know that the vaccine will have antibodies for six months because that's all the data we have right now, technically. Um, I think it's but, like nine now or something. Well, people were freaking to. out because they were like, really six months? Like what the hell? And you got to understand like there's that's the only data we have it could last for five years yeah. we don't know i mean my understanding was the six months was that we have observed our patients for six months and they still have antibodies yeah. it wasn't we observed them for six months and on like the last day of the six months they just the antibodies were gone it was yeah, like the, that was the observation period of the trial the vaccine i worked on i think we started reviewing things in june so that would put everyone like once they were able to get everything approved get people enrolled into studies and stuff like that it was the end of the summer so that would put you right yeah, at basically. six months yeah six yeah. months yeah like I feel like the reason intelligent people are against it is like there's this issue with just new things that even intelligent people are just wary of them like the science behind MRA vaccines I I just look at that and I'm like I trust this like wholly like there is, I would much rather have this than someone like, hey, we've made this virus that's slightly less worse than the one you might get. Yes. <laughs> and we're just going to inject into you like, fuck no. Like I would much rather have like an MRA, uh, mRNA vaccine than a, a fucking like a weakened virus. Yeah. It's, it's, like I said, it's simple. You cut, it's like the, the amount of material you're introducing to your body for it to react to is much smaller than traditional vaccine Um when statistically so far there's less reaction with that than there's the flu shot like the i would not make the i guess determination that it is safer than the flu shot but with the data we have so far it appears to be safer than the flu shot with less reaction so i, would, I mean like, i would not doubt that <laughs> you know what's been really interesting though is the people that have had milder cases of covid have had worse long-lasting side effects and i found that to be really interesting so like it, it what it does when people lose their sense of smell because most of the cases where people lost their sense of smell were milder cases um the virus attacks your olfactory neurons which are in your nose and then eventually will travel up to your brain but those people who've lost their sense of smell and have had those better um infections have also started having longer term psychological deficiencies or issues brain problems. fog that yeah. i that you hear about um also uh depression bipolar yeah there was a guy uh i forget he was a CEO of like what Texas Roadhouse or something. And he like killed himself. Yeah. I've had a, yeah. a couple of close friends actually develop uh, uh, things like schizophrenia psychosis after getting COVID. Like we haven't proven the COVID caused it, but there was like a bunch of, I had one friend go psychotic in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And then the second that people started getting COVID, they were just like dropping like fries. Yeah. It's, it'll be interesting to see the long-term studies on, 
COVID versus the brain and what it actually can do. Yeah, like my sense of smell still isn't fully restored. Like I can smell things a bit, but it's been like, fuck, how long has it been? It's been like three, four months and I still can't fully smell. Depending on where you are, it could be a blessing. <laughs> Move to New York. He, he, does, he, does, he does live, uh, in, you know, in certain parts of town where it's not that clean outside. So, yeah. All right. So maybe we should talk about something security wise because... um this is not a virus podcast and it is <laughs> it is but not, but not that kind of virus <laughs> well i guess just um i mean maybe infosec related i mean the number of supply chain related breaches and attacks on, on major companies have just i swear it it's like become more and more public now yeah. I, I guess um, and there's just more buzz around that because I think organizations are now taking notice more and care more about their supply chain than, than ever before. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting change and in dynamic uh, in, the, in the coming years of what are people going to be focused on um, going forward. It's not just going to be firewalls and antivirus anymore. I mean, it will be. It will be like, here's our firewall and antivirus for your supply chain. <laughs> How'd you know I was coming up with that product idea? <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a yeah. couple of security companies that are now doing that kind of like, they're basically just marketing towards we stop supply chain attacks, which kind of shows a fundamental misunderstanding of how supply chain attacks work. Well, there this are, com- oh, go ahead. This is a conversation I'm, I'm hearing among people who do top level governmental incident response as well, which is that most people don't really understand the nature of how to fix these kinds of things. They, they think to themselves, the problem was that someone didn't patch. Well, I mean, like the proximal cause was yes, someone failed to patch a thing, but there's a larger systemic cause every single time this happens. And it has to do with the culture around the, the way people handle security. Our people, people focused in really deeply on the former CEO of SolarWinds blaming the intern for leaving that password, SolarWinds123 on that, that server that was out there. I mean, so that wasn't number even one, the entry point. Yes. So, but like, yeah, I get that it wasn't the entry point. It wasn't, it was, it's a billboard saying we have terrible security here, but the point wasn't that, that the CEO blamed the intern. The point was, do they systemically let interns have access to production servers there? And that's how this happened, right? There's a larger question around it always. And, and that's not what's getting addressed right now in the supply chain attacks. People are like, how do we buy a, you know, bells and buttons and whistles that fix the problem? No, that's not the problem. Blinky box right? The cool. problem is your culture. Well, we've seen the that? same thing with phishing attacks too. I mean, like mm-hmm. a lot of it, people are like, oh, how do I block this? And it's like, train your employees. I mean, that's the number one, train your employees so they know what to look for. And I people disagree. don't want to do that. They want to buy something. They yeah. want to buy something and they don't want to spend that money training their employees. They're like, yes, but what could we do that's a 20th the cost of actually investing in our employees? Mm-hmm. I disagree. And I feel like the whole train your employees stuff is like, we put too much weight on it because employees are always going to make mistakes. They're always going to fuck up. They're going to click something. The question should be, why can an employee accidentally clicking a thing mm-hmm. own our entire organization? Yep. Right. There. It's a mix. It's a mix. Yeah. Of those. I don't know. I, I, I am. A, I think it has to be a mix. I'm diehard against phishing training. I think it's. I think it's hot garbage. It's just a scam. To me, it's not phishing training. To me, it's awareness and education where people, it's not about don't click on things. It's about if something doesn't seem right, say something, report, say something. And it doesn't even have to be a phishing email. And I think that's important to train people is not just email. It could be phone calls. It could be LinkedIn. If something doesn't sit right, report it. Um, And there's a funny story I I, want to share. There was, um, there was a, trying to, I need to animate create some uh, not anonymity for it, but uh, we were at this event uh, and we had previously educated all the attendees of this event. If there's anything suspicious, anything at all, contact a security team. It's not just gonna be emails, not gonna be phone calls, just anything suspicious, let us know. We were all in somewhere in the world. Someone came to us and said, hey, I got a very suspicious LinkedIn request from someone I haven't talked to in 15 years. Okay, so we, we, we looked at it and it was someone who was in this country that we're all in, but she said, hey, I haven't talked to this person in 15 years. Randomly, they just added me on LinkedIn. What's up with that? So we, we dug into it. Ultimately, it was harmless. I think 
this person posted somewhere on social media elsewhere that she was in this country and this person decided to reach out. Um, but hey, it was suspicious to her because she hasn't talked to this person in 15 years. Why is he reaching out? So she did the right thing and ultimately was okay. But we, we kind of laughed about it afterwards because, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop commenting right there before I get in trouble. But that was that was so cute. <laughs> But it's not that it's not that that you had to do this kind of training so that you would stop hacks from happening. You don't do it for that reason. As as somebody who's been in the corporate information security mindset before, I, I mean, if I'm buying a large phishing tra training set, it's because I'm doing it to prevent liability from having not purchased phishing training. If it's considered a best practice or a do uh, taking due care for the the realm that I'm responsible for, it's a liability issue. It's Is not it a question currently... of whether I'm training my users. Is, it, is that currently a thing where it's considered a liability issue if you don't do that? Depends yes. on the industry. But oh, yes. Because yeah. yeah. that Especially, seems like a racket. Yeah, it, you're not is, wrong. It, it, you're, yeah, you're not wrong, but you have to remember that, especially for organizations that have a lot of customers and customers have expectations of their supply chain, the customer may have an internal control or process that says, hey, all of our employees need to be aware of these things. Therefore, they require their supply chain to do the same. Uh, and a lot of companies, they will just do the check the box activities like fish. I think what, what you're confusing and uh, in, in, uh, or mixing together are these check the box compliance training activities versus real education and helping people better understand their responsibility and what to look for. I think most organizations will go down the compliance route because that's easy. Send a phishing yeah. email to the entire company. You have data. You proved you did it. Done. Yeah, like the right. most of the industry is doing. Like, there's a billion trillion dollar industry of phishing training, which is where they make a fake phishing email. They send it out to all your users. One of them clicks on it, and then you're like, "Ha, got you." Yeah. And then they just that's, do nothing. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. No. You have to create much more something that's much more holistic. You want people. You don't want to create, you, it's so easy to create an email that, hi, I got you. Yeah. We're, we're not in the game of be, uh, in a, a good security awareness program. It's not about playing the I gotcha game. It's about getting them to slow down and think and learn from that experience. Mm -hmm. I prefer like, I would like just them to, the what you said, the see something, say something. Because like as someone who does like endpoint protection or SOC level stuff, you just want the user to be like, hey, I, I think maybe like I, I clicked on something or something suspicious happened and then you can you can go check their endpoint and be like oh look they like this was run on there we can shut that down but uh regularly they just like oh that was weird uh nothing nothing happened when I opened that word document and then they say nothing and then a week later you find something on their endpoint yeah I mean I kind of tweeted something along the lines of that this week. I said, compliance is not security. Compliance is not equal security. You'd be amazed at the number of people that mean compliance to me. Yeah, I, I, I usually say that as well. And I, I sometimes get hate for that. I, I don't Just because you why. check all the boxes. I mean, yeah. Target was compliant when they got hacked. Yeah, they were PCI compliant. Mm -hmm. Look what happened to them. Just because you check all the boxes does not mean you're safe. And I've been with companies before that prioritize checking all those boxes over actual security. And that's kind of, I think, where we're struggling to find a balance in the industry right now. But I think the reason why <laughs> companies do that is it's, it's not, they're, they're focused more on the liability, controlling yeah, the liability aspect of it. it. And well, also the liability, like think about PCI. Um, I think if you're not PCI compliant, something happens, you're liable for a lot more damages versus if you are PCI compliant and something still happens, you're protected somewhat from a liability right. standpoint. Especially if your if your status as PCI compliant has to anything whatsoever to do with your cybersecurity insurance writer, so which is a whole other conversation that you, Trent, and I need to get into again, like <laughs> over time, because yeah, your eligibility for and your maintenance of your cybersecurity insurance writer has often mostly to do with your compliance checklist. It's not it doesn't have to do with your security stance at all. So this is about maybe, liability. Ultimately. Maybe we can have an, a cybersecurity insurance focused 
episode because oh, I don't know. Yes. Well, I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I'm so excited for this. This is the this is the most excited I've ever been in my entire life. We need to have a deep dive into the mechanisms and incentives for cybersecurity insurance. And I am so here for this. Or it could yeah, be like I, a I definitely have points of view on that since I worked in the insurance industry <laughs> yes. for a carrier that offered cyber insurance. So I have a lot of opinions. So in this it could case. be like a one-off special or whatever, but I think it's a point that a lot of people, I mean, I'm not very familiar with it. And I think a lot of people in the industry aren't super familiar with it. It's a relatively new area so could be interesting to talk about i know malware is like dying inside but yeah like, I, <laughs> yes, he's dying. I am so fucking over cyber insurance i, I just want to rename it to like ransomware subscription service or something like that because that's all it is at this Do, point that's not no 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 there's in fact there's really interesting regulatory climate issues around whether or not you're permitted to pay ransomware with your cybersecurity insurance. In fact, there's a bill I think right now being considered on whether or not you can make paying ransomware payments with your cybersecurity insurance payouts illegal. Basically, like uh, kidnap insurance, right? Yeah, that's the idea that you can't. A... Right. It's but it's incredibly interesting to people who are weird. <laughs> I mean, I don't find it interesting. I find it annoying because, like, the whole issue with kidnappings is that the victims don't come forwards because once you come forward, you're you roll out paying the ransom, which means you're not getting your fucking kids back. And it's it going to be the exact same thing with ransomware. It's going to be like, do we go to the authorities and be like, hey, this this hit us. Here's the Bitcoin address. Here's how like you can try and trace them down. Or are they going to say completely silent because it's now illegal to pay if they come forward? Well, that's the balance with engaging with law enforcement because you have to remember the objective of law enforcement is to not save your business. They're not there to save your business. They're not to get you back up in business. Their job is to arrest someone and prosecute someone. So their Mm -hmm. interests are actually very different from your organization. So it is a balance of of how do you engage law enforcement. And and, and so I think laws and regulations will help, will will actually set up Mm -hmm. rules and minimum requirements of what companies have to do. But if companies don't have to call law, law enforcement, depending on the scenario and situation, they might be better off not doing it because they need to focus on their business and not focus on just trying to. But they uh, do it anyway. Like most of the ransomware investigations, they start off with a company being like, Hey, we've been hit. Here's like, here's some details. Here's like access to our IR team. But then if you make paying illegal, now they're not going to volunteer that information mm-hmm. because by being in touch with law enforcement, they now cannot pay the ransom because it's illegal. Yeah. And like, that's my main problem with a, that bill and also cyber insurance in general is like, I don't know if it's a big thing in the U S but a lot of foreign cyber insurance companies end up paying ransoms. And it's led to the point where ransomware actors have now said like specifically, they are going after people with cyber insurance because that makes them more money. Yeah. But then now I've got a new business model again. Continue on. Well, the insurance companies, they, (laughs) they, they will sometimes have clauses Mm -hmm. where companies aren't allowed to publicize. They have coverage because of that. Just like for kidnap Mm -hmm. insurance, there's in the policies, it says you cannot tell your kidnappers you have insurance (laughs) or they won't. If you do, they will not pay the claim. But the thing is they're inside your network. So they know. I don't think I think if someone's in your network, there's not like a flag on your registry that says, I'm cyber insured. Well, I mean, there's going to be emails with your insurance company or some kind of contract somewhere, right? If you know what to look for, yes. Yeah, which if they you do. know what to look for. Uh, if you know what to look for, and if all those emails aren't in a third-party service provider, if you've got external legal, that's all external to the company. Sign Maybe up for Gmail now. This podcast is not wow. in any way sponsored by Google. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes these cyber insurance policies, they're, they're negotiated by the Office of General Counsel and they're working with right. external counsel as well. So there may be like little references here or there in internal email servers, but some of it may just be handled externally mm-hmm. completely. I hope we're not hijacking the conversation on just like over to cyber insurance because it's such yes. a fascinating yeah, topic. We, we need, so we need to, let's get back to well, supply chains. Over, yeah. Coming yeah. up, there's well, a special on that. Now, speaking of companies <laughs> that should have had cyber insurance, we can talk about Google, Google, and, <laughs> I can't even say it. Uh, Google and Microsoft. Wait, what? What happened? They've been targeted by China again. Oh, yeah, that happened. Or no, sorry, North Korea. Yeah. North, okay, North Korea. What? Uh, they unleashed an Internet Explorer as your day. I mean, if you're still using Internet Explorer, then yeah, there's no hope. They, for no, you. they had a they had a Chrome <laughs> one as well. They um, so basically they uh, 
they set up a blog for vulnerability research, which is, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, is developing software exploits. And they basically made this blog so it would be appealing to vulnerability researchers. And they put an IE zero day and a Chrome zero day on the blog. And basically the idea was burn a zero day in order to hack people who find zero days, in which case you get infinite free zero days. And it's like, it's not really a huge campaign, but it did cause like a lot of noise because they actually did manage to hit some researchers with this. And now everyone's kind of realizing that uh, it was typically believed that these kind of people, because they didn't work for states, they were somewhat outside of the spy game. And then they didn't have to have like the, uh, you know, the downside of being a spy, but that was kind of the big fuck, you know, like we're going to go after you too. I think the people who maybe made a big stink about it are the people who got really salty because they got hit, they got owned. <laughs> no, it was more the people who didn't get owned and they were really? like, why didn't they hack me? <laughs> Am I not important enough to be yeah. targeted by North Korea? Oh my gosh. Do you remember that time when like someone, I forget, I got up one morning and like I got on Twitter and someone on LinkedIn had like been connecting with all of these different uh, professionals in our industry and like yeah. trying to, do you remember that? And like, oh, like, yeah the people that were upset were all the people who were like, why didn't this person friend request me? <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah it, like was, it was pretty good. Like, I think the Hafnium stuff was a big deal. The North Korean stuff is mostly just noise, but it's interesting in that I haven't seen this done before. Like, I haven't seen people go after vulnerability researchers, at least not overtly. Mm-hmm. But for me, the Hafnium stuff was the really interesting one because it was the first time, at least that I'm aware of, that a nation state has just indiscriminately used zero days against U.S. systems. It is interesting, and yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have the threat profile of like a Google Project Zero researcher or anything like that. But yeah, it's the supply chain attacks and the the attacks versus Microsoft that are the interesting ones. That is the nature of of burning that level. And then the Google response to the recent campaign as well too, by um, exposing the friendly hacking campaigns happening inside the United States is just a really interesting one as well too. I don't know what to think about that one right that at the was, moment. I haven't, I haven't formed my opinion. I haven't Someone... formed my opinion on it yet. Wasn't it someone from N- uh, NSA or DOD basically wrote an op-ed like, please stop burning our campaigns? <laughs> yeah. And it was basically, they were trying to get sympathy from the security community is that uh, Google Project Zero, for viewers who don't know, they basically tried to find zero days in the wild and then get them patched uh, so that the, I'm going to say quote unquote bad guys can't use them. But the problem is both friendly and unfriendly states are using zero days. And in this case, they burnt a friendly intelligence operation. And then someone from one of the intelligence agencies, I believe, I, I might be wrong, went and wrote an op-ed trying to get sympathy that their their tools had been burned. Mm-hmm. Such sympathy. Yeah, I don't Very have sad. much to say there. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what, <laughs> yeah. what, what else to add yeah. to that. I... Yeah. I mean, the last, uh, the last thing I think pretty much any of us is ever going to say is patch your shit. Right? That's my favorite. That's, that's my okay. favorite motto. You know what? Like, I'm going to get that tattooed on me. Oh, yeah. God, no. Patch. I want to get a patch, I will. right? Like an embroidered patch that just yeah. says your shit and it's a patch, right? You should design those. I'm totally good. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> I'm in. Let's do it. Well, I think the whole idea with um, the supply chain stuff is not, it's patching is certainly a step, but it's not only patching, but knowing what's going on in your shop. Know, you know, understand what traffic is supposed to be flowing in what directions or know what apps are supposed to be talking to what servers, et cetera. <laughs> And if you're just purely relying on patching and just letting people, whatever, you know, traffic do whatever, yeah, you're going to miss things and something weird might be happening. You might not notice until it's too late. So I, I wonder if that's going to be the trend over the next few years to address the supply chain stuff. It's basically monitor everything or at least I mean, have that's, some. That's already a thing. Like a lot of the issue with people supply- aren't doing it. Yeah, but even if you right. do, a lot of the issue with supply chain attacks is you've owned the supply chain. So if you say you own Google and you put malware on a system that communicates back to Google, then how are you going to find that? Like if you already own the supply chain, then you can communicate through it. So it makes it very, very difficult to know what is their actual software beaconing back to their systems and what is this random bullshit. I think in the case of SolarWinds, they actually use third-party C2s. 
So that was the big tell. Mm -hmm. But there's no reason they couldn't have just run communications through one of this. Yes, that, that is true. But I, I don't think they always would. And I think that's where if you were to monitor everything and understand what is Orion supposed to be talking to? Hey, why the heck is it beaconing out over here? But I think everyone, I think the point is people are taking for granted these trusted sources and providers and their supply chain. And they're like, oh yeah, Orion, we're getting patches from Orion. So it's, it's all good. We don't have to inspect what's going on there. I definitely agree with you. But then like, can you imagine the overhead on having to reverse engineer every patch from every piece of software? That maybe it's not, maybe it's not reverse engineering. Maybe it's a push for transparency of you're selling a product. How the heck does this thing work? But even oh, but you... wait a minute. You're... Go ahead. Go ahead. I know. I'll let you go. If, even if you're selling that, if it's transparency on the part of the third party you're looking for, there's a reason why senior leadership and in information security has to do with contracts management now more than anything else. Like at, at a certain level, what you're doing is you're finding out where a third party uh, product not just plugs into your technology, but plugs into your policy documents, because that right there is where you're tracking what touches what else in your supply, your internal supply chain for your company. So if you don't if you don't have somebody who's watching not just the technical connection mm -hmm. between an API and whatever you're pulling internally, but also the policy document that governs it, there's no transparency inside the company to anybody who's trying to audit your systems and saying what's what's touching what else here? Where do we have exposure if something has gotten has gotten breached? And the problem is, is that the kind of person who both understands the technology well enough to understand what the API is doing. And who can also write a transparent, clear policy document that isn't going to make someone want to pull their eyeballs out every time they read it is a rare human being. And most of the time, they're not appreciated for who they are. It's really hard to do that kind of technical policy documentation. And it's, I mean, that's going to be the next generation, really, of information security leadership is people who know how to translate that stuff. Contracts management. And see, insurance and contracts management, I have turned into my <laughs> grandfather. Are you kidding? Okay. I mean, that's... Favorite? You want to go? Sure. I was just going to say my favorite story. The first time I ever read about like supply chain attack was the Maersk, um, the really big story that they did about Maersk like a couple years ago. It was, was not that Petra. supply chain. I guess it was, was not logistics. Petra. It was, yeah, it was yeah. logistics. It was not Petra. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but God, just reading that story and like watching how everything unraveled was crazy because you don't even think about some of the stuff that it'll impact until like it happens. And I think that's the problem that a lot of people are having too. Oh, I remember now, like not Petya, it was like some tiny little company that ran like some major accounting software and they, they owned, I think Ukraine. the backend server. Yeah. Like it was like a mom and pop shop. Like this accounting software was run by yeah. like this tiny, tiny company and they got owned by Russia. But yeah. yes, it, was, it was a supply chain attack. It literally was another supply chain attack. And it got all but like a handful of their machines, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think yeah. it was like, I they, they said they had a power failure or something. And as a result of the power failure, it wasn't able to encrypt some of their, their servers. Yeah. And it, that server was in Africa or something. And someone had to go yeah. and get yes. it and bring it back. Do you remember? <laughs> single, it was a single server in yes. Africa. And the person there, they had, they were doing a power cycle and maintenance in the building and they'd powered that single server off. And that person flew back to, yes. to, to like the literally <laughs> like, they bought a first class seat for it. And, yeah. and the, the guy sat next to it in a first class seat all the way there. Yeah. Oh my God. No, <laughs> it's so yeah. crazy. But like, yeah, that's like my favorite. That was the first story I think I read about anything like that. And that, that was crazy to me. It blew my mind. So I'll, um, I'll include that link somewhere like in the documentation for this show. And then you can put it up on the YouTube or whatever when you post it. Just well, the further it, about so managing supply chain risk, uh, it's it's also once you have selected a vendor or provider for, for your supply uh, as part of your supply chain, you need to make sure you continually feel comfortable where they are because a decision made five years ago, they may have been best in class. They have their shit together for their security team. Two years, two year, five years, a lot can change. They can be very lax in how they do security. They may have very poor controls and processes of, of promoting code into production or whatever. So you really have to keep an eye on you, whoever your relationships are over time as well to make sure to continuing to live up to your expectations um, as well. Because I think when things like this happen, every company starts, you know, starts sending questionnaires and starts auditing their mm -hmm. supply chain and they realize, oh crap, it has kind of deviated from what we originally thought they were. It's a nightmare. Let's mm -hmm. we need to drop this vendor. And they could have been more proactive if to realize that 
shit's about to hit the fan with this company if they maintain engagement with them to understand what's going on in that company uh, and that their standards are still to level that you expect it to be. Or mad concept here, sunset contracts. If you don't have a, a reason yep. to continue with them after a period of time, as opposed to leaving them in position by default. Again, like we, we get just we not get, my contract. So it's crazy keep hacking those. stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, hacking just keep stuff. paying me, please. This is the backbone. This is the backbone of all of the conversations we're having right now. Is that is that people think all of this stuff is fun and exciting and crazy and awesome and Russia and woo and North shipping? No, this is actually about contracts management and policy documentation at every little level of all of this and making decisions like sunsetting your vendors instead of just letting relationships roll for 20 years, like operating on the nobody ever got fired for buying IBM principle, right? So this is the backbone of the industry at this point. It's just as much a business as anything else. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look more into the other side of things because like, sure, you can get rid of the vendors you're not using, but the fact of the matter is that everyone is going to be centralized around a few vendors like Microsoft, like who who is sunsetting their Microsoft contract and moving to Linux? I mean, some people are, but they, those people are fucking crazy. This but, is the year. Uh, <laughs> I think that's why it's be the for, for your Linux on the desktop. <laughs> Depending on the Linux platform on the and technology, you do have to be. You need to weigh that. I think that is a legitimate risk. You have to make sure you are somewhat vendor agnostic. Yes, you may have more concentration and balance of, of workloads in one vendor over another because of, cap- of feature sets or business needs, whatever it may be. But you need to think about what happens if this vendor goes away or something happens to this vendor. You need to not be locked in because I think what might happen is for organizations that are, I don't know if you guys know what Lotus Notes is, but companies that, really are, locked Lotus into, Notes. <laughs> companies that are locked into Lotus Notes it is really, really difficult to get out of it because they basically had the mindset of, oh, we're going to go all in on, on Domino and Lotus Notes. Now they can't get rid of it. And you can't take that mindset. You have to be very careful when you jump all into a technology that you don't overinvest or at least have a strategy of exiting that. Because a life cycle of a product or platform or whatever you deploy, there's a, it's a life cycle. It's not going to live forever. You have to plan for it to die. Yeah, that's been a really big Boy. thing for us. So like I'm in cloud engineering and that's one of our main focuses is making sure that we stay vendor agnostic in the cloud. We have like five or six different providers that we're trying to like split things between based on function. And um, it's while well, it's been a big learning curve, like trying to learn the nuances of every cloud provider, I think in the end, it's going to be a really good way to go. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for joining Tech H Outro, so bye. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> <I get it. laughs>